This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Welcome to The Every Lawyer, a Canadian Bar Association podcast. I'm your host, Marlise Silver-Sweeney. Today is a very special episode of The Every Lawyer. We get to chat with Brad McGeer, the newly appointed president of the Canadian Bar Association. He's also the first Indigenous person to ever hold this role and is a member of the Peter Ballantyne Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. We're talking reconciliation, COVID-19, and even his amateur theatre career. Brad is a partner with Maurice Law in Winnipeg, where he focuses on Aboriginal law, civil litigation, and administrative law. He was part of the legal team that successfully defended a challenge to a First Nations tax laws under the First Nation Fiscal Management Act, the first litigation involving that statute. He's been a member of the CBA since 1996, most recently serving as the president of its Manitoba branch. Brad, it's such a privilege to get to speak with you today. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me and uh, thanks for joining. So your personal goal this year is to advance the work of the CBA's Truth and Reconciliation Initiative. Can you tell me more about this and the work you've already done in this area? The board passed a work implementation plan for the Bar Association, I guess it's about a year and a half ago, where the CBA is is going to be working on the calls to action to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We've done a we've done a number of things. There's a there's now a plaque, for example, in the national office acknowledging the um, the unceded territory of the Algonquin Nation. We had a ceremony for that. I think ongoing, the CBA has always responded to the the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in terms of uh, its own advocacy efforts and and uh, the the subject areas and resolutions that have gone forward in council over the years, but specifically. One of the biggest things that is going on uh, with with the CBA, education of lawyers uh, in terms of the history of Canada vis-a-vis Indigenous people and, um, you know, Indigenous legal issues. So we've developed an educational program. It's a, so it's a CPD program called The Path. We did that with a, uh, with a partner based out of Ottawa, uh, who's majority Indigenous-owned. That program is, I believe, four hours long. Uh, you can get credit with it. It's been uh, recognized by law societies across the country as, uh, as, a, as a valid CPD program. And it really brings to light for people uh, what has gone on in this country in terms of Indigenous people, the legal system, the history of the country. Uh, and I, I've had, uh, personally, I've had people contact me after they've taken the course and just said, I learned so many things I didn't know. We were never taught these things in school. We certainly weren't taught them in law school. Uh, and uh, they're really appreciative. Uh, it's uh, We've had such good uptake. We've had over a thousand members take the course already. And we only released uh, the program in the early summer. Wow. And we've had uh, a number of law schools approach us wanting to uh, purchase the product and uh, and have their um, their students. I believe uh, it's now mandatory for all first year students at the University of Calgary to uh, take this uh, this mini course. Uh, we've had law societies contact us about uh, being able to use it uh, for a licensing fee. Um, 
for their members. And we've had large uh, law firms who want to be able to use the product, not just for their own um, internal lawyers, but also to present to some of their big clients. So the uptake has been great. Re- I'm really happy to, to, to hear what's going on. That's fantastic. And you're saying it was just released this summer. Yeah, just months ago. Wow. Yeah, I'm just thinking back to my own legal education and certainly the holes in it when it comes to um, the area of Aboriginal law and, you know, Indigenous relationships with the law. So I think that, you know, this is something that I want to do immediately, actually. So thanks for telling us about it. Yeah, I mean, in my own education, you know, I went to, I'm going to probably regret saying this, but almost, (laughs) almost 30 years ago that I was in law school. And, you know, there was an Aboriginal law course, but it was taught as a seminar course where the professor came in, talked a couple of classes, and then had us all do papers and present on our papers. In my mind, I don't think you get as much out of that as you do of a more well-structured course. And now, and, you know, in the last 20 years, I've seen way more courses, way more in-depth courses, um, legal texts, textbooks being made available to students, um, and, and to the point where I know at some law schools, they actually do the, uh, the Kairos blanket exercise uh, as part of their orientation. And um, I think a lot of this is response to the calls to action and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. For sure. And actually, that's a really good segue because that's something that I wanted to talk about because that's going to be a feature of your podcast. And just so everyone, our listeners know, Brad's podcast is called Conversations with the President, the President's Take on TRC's Calls to Action. Uh, and so it's going to be highlighting many of the 94 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, particularly those related to the legal profession. Can you talk to us a bit more about uh, some of the more important messages from the calls to action for the legal profession and the justice community specifically? Well, there's there's 94 calls to action. Not all of them obviously deal with the uh, with the legal profession. So, uh, working with our staff, um, Aviva Rotenberg and Kim Covert in particular, in terms of developing what we would be doing with the uh, nine episodes, uh, we're starting off by we'll be looking at uh, funding, uh, education funding in particular. Uh, that was the call to action number 11. Sort of tying that in, how earlier education is so important to people getting on that path to becoming lawyers, to getting that legal education and and ensuring that there is adequate funding. Uh, You know, some people might say that, well, you know, that's education, but in my view, it's all tied together. Um, Of course. uh, The, you know, barriers uh, for people who live in remote communities in terms of the level of education they're able to obtain, lack of mentorship, uh, systemic racism in, in education, uh, lack of awareness as Aboriginal issues in schools. Uh, these are all, I think, part and parcel of the conversation that ultimately mm. leads to uh, to legal education. Uh, the second episode we're, we're looking at doing is in response to call to action 27, cultural competency training. And so we're going to have some guests on there but to talk about cu- cultural competency because there's a lot of a lot of initiatives to do that. There's also uh, there's also some criticism on what does cultural competency mean. Uh, so we're going to talk about that term. What does it mean? Um, uh, what are people's viewpoints? Uh, how can this be done? Then we'll actually uh, uh, talk about legal education in another episode because that's called Action Twenty Eight. Uh, again, talking about 
what can be done with legal education in terms of cultural competency, in terms of what's being taught, uh, you know, hopefully bringing in some legal educators to talk about that. I won't go through each episode individually, but we're going to be looking at the recognition of Aboriginal justice systems, uh, Aboriginal Crown relations and the education of public servants. Uh, UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, that is going to be a episode one I'm really looking forward to having some discussion on. And uh, it, the last one will be kind of a wrap up in terms of uh, where do we go next? What comes next? That kind of thing. So I, I think it's going to be a really interesting podcast series, and at least I'm really hoping so since I'm the host. Um, <laughs> but uh, looking forward to doing it. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, the one will come out probably every month or so. So I'm, I'm hoping lots of people tune in. I am too. And I, I know you have one audience member right here. I'm really, really looking forward to being taken through the different TRC calls to action by you personally. Of course, I've read them and I've thought about them, but just having more of a richer conversation about them, particularly how they relate to the legal profession, I think is really valuable. Yeah. It's a personal priority for me, but it's really personal for me having had family members, particularly my grandfather who went through residential school and that that legacy that uh, that happened as a result of uh, residential school and the impacts it had on indigenous people from coast to coast to coast, uh, you know, with with things, other things happening in the 60s scoop, uh, all sorts of things. It's just uh, I, I, I said in my presidential speech at my reception uh, earlier in September, I said, uh, I'm committed to having these discussions and uh, some of them are going to be uncomfortable. And I'm not going to apologize for them being uncomfortable because they're conversations that have to be had. Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually what I wanted, part of what I wanted to talk to you about personally. And I just wanted to get how you feel about being the first Indigenous person to hold the position of CBA president. What does that mean to you and your family and the legacy that you're building? Well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm honored and I'm humbled. Um, because people keep asking me this question and I, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I've been involved in leadership positions within the organization for probably a 15 years, uh, both in the Manitoba branch and then, uh, nationally in terms of sections. And then on the, on the board, I did a stint on the board under the old, mo uh, governance model. And now I've done the, done this one on the new governance model. And I just, um, sort of when I thought, well, you know, maybe, Maybe running for the presidency is something that I want to do. I feel that I could give something to the organization in terms of leadership. And um, I'm not sure I was front and center. I was going, oh, and I'd be the first Indigenous president. I just thought, you know, I think I got what it takes to be president. I'm glad that I'm, I'm president. Uh, I, I'm so extremely grateful that my colleagues on, you know, the board of directors, uh, section chairs, uh, the branch presidents all had the confidence uh, in me to vote me in uh, as vice president um, a couple years ago, and uh, certainly I'm 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 honored that they that they made that decision. I think it's important, certainly for the association for the legal profession, that we're able to show that the biggest legal association in Canada uh, is actually capable of having some diversity at its top leadership position. So I, I'm I'm the first Indigenous. President uh, Vivian Salmon was the first black president in its history. Uh, I think it's been a long time coming. 
Um, I think it was necessary for the for the organization, and uh, I just see it as a I see it as a really positive thing. Absolutely, and part of it, I think, is for the young lawyers, in particular, young Indigenous lawyers who are following your career and who are seeing you in a leadership position. What advice do you have for them? I would say I think uh, one of the big things is don't give up. Uh, I know that the practice of law can be frustrating, and I and I think that there is some additional challenges that that Indigenous lawyers face um, that perhaps other other lawyers don't face. Um, and if uh, if you if you're getting frustrated, um, reach out and talk to someone. Uh, at this point in time, we have a lot of uh, senior lawyers. Uh, we have more judges, uh, not, not enough in my mind, but we do have some people who've been in the profession now for a long time and uh, reach out and, uh, you know, find someone you can talk to. I, I know that a lot of a lot of more senior Indigenous lawyers will, you know, they're willing to go out for coffee. They're willing to have a discussion because I think sometimes we need that mentorship to be available. I, and, and this is, I mean, mentorship is a, is a big thing for young lawyers everywhere. Uh, it doesn't matter where they're from, specifically in terms of uh, younger Indigenous lawyers, you know, you can do it. If, if you need help, get that help, talk to someone, find a mentor, because uh, just talking to someone will help an awful lot. All right. So find your mentor. And I'm sure that you are an enormous mentor uh, in your position right now as president of the CBA. People keep suggesting that to me, but <laughs> I, I, uh, I start to become a bit self-conscious. Okay. Well, I'll just suggest it and you can, you know, nod your head. Okay. Um, I wanted to switch gears a bit and talk about well, the time in which you are taking office, which is a time of enormous upheaval. You're co-chairing the CBA's task force on justice issues arising from COVID-19, which likely wasn't something you probably ever thought you'd be doing in your, your career. Um, you're doing that with your predecessor, Vivine Semin. What can the CBA do to support its members through this this challenging, turbulent time? Well, as a CBA, we have um, made resources a bit, and we did right out of the, right out of the gates, uh, mid-March when all of a sudden, you know, we, through the winter, we'd been hearing about this, uh, this COVID, uh, you know, virus that had been ravaging Europe and, uh, and, and, and China. And, uh, you know, it didn't seem to be here. And I can remember sort of, blithely going off to our, our governance meetings in the middle of February in Ottawa, like not thinking about it. And, you know, less than a month later, I've pulled my kids out of school. I've ba I've moved, you know, my office into the basement. Uh, my wife has moved into the dining room. The kids are working at the kitchen table. Um, but right from that point in time, uh, the Bar Association and when I talk, now when I say bar association, I mean nationally, and I mean the branches all pivoted and immediately started making uh, resources available to the members. Um, whether it was we 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 pulled up uh, previous uh, CPDs we had done on pandemic planning, you know, dusted them off, updated them a bit, but got them out there. Uh, we got uh, there was branches who were regularly sending out uh, information daily as it developed in terms of uh, court closures, changes to court process, 
registries, whether those were land title or corporate registries, things that were changing and were providing that information to their members like almost instantaneously. And we also began developing CPD programs specifically designed around responding to COVID, um, you know, how it's going to impact your practice, things that you could do. And uh, I, I'm pretty proud of the organization as a whole in terms of how it responded and supported uh, supported members. I know the Ontario branch uh, made its Zoom account available to uh, to the courts, uh, and they were recently oh, wow. they were recently thanked by the courts for for that service that they provided. Um, uh, I know, uh, for example, in the Manitoba branch, they started having calls with the managing partners of uh, a bunch of the firms just to. Because sometimes people just need to talk about, okay, how are you handling this? How are you handling this? And so mm-hmm. I just, um, yeah, I was just impressed with the organization from right across the country in terms of how it, uh, how it, how it pivoted. And I think people are getting tired of that term, but it's probably the best term to use. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And as you described that, <laughs> that rapid response. Now that we're, you know, over six months into this pandemic, and it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon, what types of issues will you and Vivine be tackling in your uh, task force on COVID-19? So we, we've been meeting for the last six months. Uh, actually, there was a meeting just the other day, which unfortunately, I couldn't attend because of a, a client um, commitment. But uh, the focus now, uh, after a lot of discussions, uh, people would uh, present what was going on in their particular arena. Um, uh, that uh, there will uh, a study will now start to be worked on, and uh, Professor Karen Eltis from the University of Ottawa um, uh, will be authoring the report. And the idea is to have that report out by March of next year. Um, so we, we will continue to have some meetings, but it's really now we want to move into uh, the process of what have we learned? Uh, mm. Where have uh, where have we adapted? And again, the task force is focused very much on Supreme Court and the federal courts, uh, including the Tax Court of Canada, as well as federal administrative tribunals. And it's the idea really is to uh, see wh- what have we learned? What has changed? What what is adapted and what from those changes are here to stay because there has been a call for modernization of our, our particularly our court systems for a long time. A lot of that is uh, of course um, impacted by uh, the resources that are made available, but also, you know, through the adoption of technology um, you know, what, what can we adapt all the while maintaining that commitment to the open court uh, concept, which is which is part of our democracy, our democratic tradition. So how do we how do we how do we adapt, um, sort of on a go forward basis? Uh, how do we ensure access to justice? So that that that's that's going to be a lot of the discussion in the in the paper. Those are some big topics. Brad. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, um, the, the federal court trial division adapted fairly quickly. And had trials by way of Zoom, where people were, if they could be in their offices, they're in their offices. If they were in their homes, uh, you know, and they were, they were robed, and the judge was on there, and, and you know, they they did it using Zoom and other uh, other platforms. Um, so, you know, what what kind of things can we do? Um, did you know? Did those trials 
or, or motions or other things, you know, ensure, ensure access to justice, um, ensure that people's, uh, rights were, were maintained. I mean, I did, I myself did three days of mediation, uh, over the summer by way of a video platform. It was, uh, May not have been the thing that I really wanted to do, but we still got it done. Uh, I had my, my client on one, to, and this was a multi-party litigation. There was four parties, so lawyers uh, and uh, clients. So there's a lot of little boxes with people's uh, faces in them. I was about to say, that's definitely a gallery view situation on Zoom if I've ever heard one. But yeah, yeah. yeah. What, a, what a time to be starting uh, as president of the CBA. It's certainly, I'll, I'll be interested in chatting with you again in a year and seeing what your what your year was like. Um, I know you're a busy person, and so I don't want to keep you for too long, but I have to ask, my last question to you has to be about the fact that you're an amateur actor and you have been in eight productions of The Lawyer's Play. Don't think you're getting away from this. A little bit of context for our listeners. The Lawyer's Play, it's a fundraiser between the Manitoba Bar Association and the, Mani- the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre. What's your favorite role then and why? Oh boy. Um, I should, I should preface it to saying that my, the first time I did it was 17 years ago when I met my <laughs> wife oh. because uh, she's a lawyer as well. And she was in, in that play. I, I had a small part. So that was not my favorite part. Being in that meeting her was probably one of my favorite things, but well, um, let's hope. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's give her that. <laughs> I would have to say my favorite role was playing Carmen Gia in the producers. Oh. Um, I don't know if you've seen the producers. Uh, Carmen Gia is the character who's the assistant to the, um, to the director they eventually hire to, um, to direct the show. And so um, uh, my character was very flamboyant, which if you knew me was, was something that uh, wouldn't exactly come across if you met me <laughs> for the first time, but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, I've also been in in shows with uh, Senator Marie Sinclair. A lot of people don't realize that he's a uh, he's been in those shows as well. So uh, uh, I was in Midsummer Night's Dream with him uh, as well. Wow. Well, it sounds like it's. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't know that when I asked this question, I'd find out that's how you met your partner. But it sounds like it's been a really important part of your life, actually. Yeah, yeah, she's the one with the talent. I'm. I, <laughs> I did it on a dare. Ended up doing eight productions, but um, uh, yeah, she's the one. She's the triple threat who can act, sing, and dance. So nice. Um, just as my kind of final follow up question from that, you have this background in community theater. You're about to lead a podcast. Do you see any intersection between storytelling and your profession and the importance? Yeah, I think it's, uh, there's a direct link, uh, as lawyers, uh, especially for litigators, you go into court and you, 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 you tell the story. You're not, not a fictional story, but it, it's still stories. You're, you're presenting what happened to your decision maker and you're characterizing those, you, you have to tell the tale of what, what occurred. And so, um, you know, that I, I guess getting back to the bar associations, the Manitoba bar associations production is uh, the ridiculous number of lawyers who go in those shows who actually have professional acting background. Uh, People who went to the national theater school, other people who did um, 
uh, fine arts at university and in particular drama. Um, and it just seems to be a natural fit for particularly litigators uh, and, and, and telling those stories. Um, yeah, I think that I think that's a, a really important link. Well, I'm personally looking forward to your storytelling throughout your podcast uh, over this next year, and I wish you the best of luck in your position. Thank you very much. What a privilege it is to speak with Brad about his goals for the Canadian Bar Association this year. I'd love to hear what you think about reconciliation and the CBA's role in it, as well as the other topics we explored in the episode today. Tweet to us at CBA underscore news, or you can reach me at my handle at SS. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes and leave us a review if you like what you hear. Brad's podcast, Conversations with the President, the President's Take on TRC's Calls to Action, will start in November. Thanks for listening.